Hey, welcome to the Arfikr podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have another episode of Matbakh for you, our series all about food and drink from the Arab world. This episode has the special guest Mustafa Al-Rifai, who is an Egyptian chef and falafel expert. This episode is hosted by Mahdi Blaine. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, make sure that you go over to YouTube to check out the podcast in video form and like, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Okay, hope you enjoy the episode. Today we have Mustafa Erefe, uh, co-founder and executive chef. Uh, he's the executive chef, co-founder and partner of Zuba Homegrown in Egypt. He's a proud board member and treasurer of the Egyptian Chefs Association. He's also a certified executive chef of the American Culinary Federation. Recently, he was selected by the Egyptian Chefs Association to be the Egyptian Ambassador to Chefs Without Borders, the humanitarian division of the World Association of Chefs Society. Uh, his culinary philosophy and passion reflect the growing trends towards a healthier natural lifestyle. And by working with neighboring farmers to seek out the finest regional and local organic produce, he demonstrates the essence of his approach. So thank you, Mustafa, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mehdi. Really appreciate it. So I guess to start, um, I think some, I think something that a lot of people would just be interested in is maybe starting with your childhood. Uh, I saw an article where you mentioned that your grandmother was one of your first sort of avenues into cooking in the kitchen. So you could could you talk more about that? How you got in, like interested in the kitchen, and um, maybe describe one of the like favorite foods she made or maybe a memory. Sure, um, I was lucky. Uh, my mom is a AUC graduate, American University in Cairo. My dad was a, a doctor. Uh, so when I grew up, I grew up between the city and the village. So I had the taste of both. Uh, my grandma was one of those uh, farmers that she actually, uh, she loved education. She loved to teach. She, she sent her kids all to uh, colleges and stuff like that. The old doctors and engineers, including my mom. And she just, uh, she was an amazing lady. She was one of those strong, uh, strong grammars, you know. One of the th- strengths she had was actually cooking. And she used to use all the traditions, like, like the really, really old traditions. Like the stove was only to reheat food. She always cooked on the, what we call canoon, which is basically just like a, a U-shaped uh, place made with uh, stones. And she used uh, woods and, um, excuse me, and hay and stuff like that to cook. She used to use the old traditional oven, like what we call forni baladi. And she wakes up like by sun, sunshine and she makes like um, 10 different types of bread. She, uh, she has her own chicken, the chicken coop. Uh, we go grab the, the eggs in the morning. She makes everything in the house. So it was a shame if she actually goes and pushes anything from the store. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in this house and she taught me a lot of her secrets and the recipes she used to make. And she used to make from anything she makes delicious food so and believe it or not 60 percent of the food she used to make was actually vegan really she was really creative with those kind of stuff and the, the, those stuff like now like you didn't see him no more in egypt like series it's like uh, like colored greens and stuff like that like like hobeza uh, and all this we used to use a lot at home now it's rarely you can find it why do you think that is she was a great cook uh, because it's, it's, people look at it as a demeanor, like uh, local or baladi, like, like it, it's, not like, uh, it's not like Italian food, it's not like uh, French or uh, Japanese. They look at it like it's a demeanor. Yeah. 
ف... فاي ثينك اتس لك اف يو لوك ات ايجيبت لك وي هاف ايس كولد خميره النقطه ذس ييست اي ثينك اتس بين بين ايجيبت فور 1000 ييرز اتس ذا وي دي ميك ذا ييست اتس فيري كلوز تو وات وي نو ناو از ذا ساور دوز and it's really amazing and that's what my grandma used to do to make like she never bought yeast she always make her own yeast she makes everything at home yogurt everything um now so nobody makes this like it's uh, rarely find it oh, that's interesting uh, but i wanted to start by asking i guess again sort of looking back to your childhood what are your sort of favorite memories associated with street food growing up in egypt the, the minute you said that mahdi it just clicked me like um, like you know the like around noon That's what we call ayala, uh, which means like that's the time like most of ad- adults lays down or sleep in summertime, yeah. and that's when the ladies gets busy cooking lunchtime, and that's the smell of the streets between yeah. the baked uh, the gratin rice and like the rose rose um, uh, they cooking chicken or beef or uh, some houses cooking uh, uh, fish in in the oven. The bread smell, all those smells, just like makes me happy when I say when I remember those days. Mm. It just like it was amazing the smell, the simplicity of ingredients. And I mean, have you noticed, or, or have there been any sort of broad shifts in the way people interact with street food, or like the different sort of things that are being sold from when you were a child to now? Yes, when I was a child, like tamia or falafel was actually. It wasn't a daily breakfast. It was like something that you buy during the the suit. Suit was only uh, like the market. It's only once a week. So basically, th- those are like uh, uh, carts that comes with the market. They put their uh, their uh, their kiosks in the market. It's uh, like a really big big uh, space. And that, my my village used to be like in uh, every Wednesday. That's when you buy lots of candy. Like and and the candy was like only two three types. uh tamaya was the 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 bread bread and all this so it was like amazing um amazing to buy the street food like it was like it wasn't we take it for granted it's not like now now you find it in every corner yeah because yeah definitely i feel like street food has definitely been a lot more revered you have like a lot of netflix shows talk really just highlighting street food i don't think they have one about them like any sort of uh countries in the middle east north africa yet so hopefully but uh I, I guess moving forward, I know you were formally trained in the U.S. and I saw in an article you actually mentioned the prospect of cooking Egyptian food was quite daunting. It was sort of scary to you. Could you like elaborate about that and tell us, like, just tell us more about why you felt that way initially? Um, I never cooked Egyptian food like 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 a professional cooking until I came back to Egypt. So when I was in the States, I cook only for for myself, for my friends, um, like small meals. Then when I start to 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 cook a more Egyptian food and just like it's it hits you, you know like like it it brings back memories. It just makes you happy when you do this. Mm. Um, I think it's uh, like I always wonder like the builders builders of the pyramids, what did they eat uh, to carve all those uh, temples in Egypt? What did they eat mm. uh, oh, like seven thousand years ago? Lots of those ingredients didn't exist, so I wanted to know. So it was actually for me, it was just like it made me hungry and hungry for more information and more, more um, to search more about everything in, in Egyptian cuisine. 
I guess, was there some sort of disconnect between your formal training? I, I think I saw that you had a lot of training in Italian cuisine in particular, but what yeah. there's you had to realize that you ended up learning as you were like getting more into cooking Egyptian food professionally? Yes, um, because when we started, when I, saw, when I got back to Egypt, um, the Egyptian cookbooks was like really not telling you that much. And it was like always shortened information. So you have to go search yourself for more information, for more techniques and connect with different people and go to from house to house. Look, what, what my, one of my favorite trips was actually uh, three years ago. I went to Upper Egypt to, uh, to the south and we did, uh, we did a tour in, in a few villages in Said. I spent a few days in each house cooking with the ladies and the, the families and eating what they eat. It's just like, it's amazing to connect all those dots and have it in your hand, you know, like and create a recipe book that shows you what they actually eat. It's not just about the, the food ingredients and the pictures in the book. It's actually, actually how they eat. Like I learned that they, they have to eat once or twice a week. Uh, vegan food, like what we call ordehi, like it means like no fish, no beef, no uh, chicken. So, and the way the the protocol of this, like what they eat next to it, like the aubergine, how they pick it and use it for for different uh, um, plates and the doa, which is a spice mix. That's like really really main thing for them. Four or five different kinds of bread, and the way they make them, and it's just like an honor thing, you know, like like the way they drink tea, the way they drink coffee in every part of Egypt. It's just like amazing. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And um, could you talk more about your different travels in Egypt? Maybe, uh, I'm just wondering what region in, or maybe town, village that you saw that was quite unique in particular to uh, like stuff you more associate to Egypt. And I guess, yeah, I guess expound on the other experiences you had. I, w- I will split Egypt into different regions. So like I would say that Eastern desert the north is eastern desert, which is like uh, includes Sinai. This you will witness like food tastes and looks like and very similar to what you will eat in Jordan and Palestine. Mm. It's a very similar food, similar, a very similar breakfast, uh, same habits and eating and everything. If you go south, you will see Al Ababda and Bashair, which is um, tribes that lives between Eritrea, Ethiopia. Uh, Sudan and Egypt, and they have drink their own coffee, the Jabana coffee, and they have their own habits, salati, and the, they, they cook a lot, like while they they traveling. Then you have the Delta, which is uh, where I came from, and we have our own unique bread, our own unique uh, food items. But my favorite spot is actually Siwa, the oasis between Egypt and Libya. They eat, um, they are Amazigh, they are not. Uh, you know, you are familiar with Amazigh, of course. Of course. Um, yeah, they are not Bedouins. They are more civilized. I'm not going to say civilized, but I would say they are more mellow than, uh, than Bedouins. They are um, more educated. Um, they are civilized. Uh, and the way they eat, they kept their traditions the same way for thousands of years. And the way they drink their tea, the way they eat, everything is just to blow your mind. Um, I just enjoy going there. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't get this sort of sense of the diversity, uh, especially when you're not like living in Egypt. Um, but I and guess- we, still, we, didn't, we didn't talk about the, the, the Nubians or the, the Saibis, you know, like it's a whole different culture and a whole different uh, uh, way of, the, of food and language and everything. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I guess in terms of 
your travels, what what was the decision making process in actually like devising the menu for Zuba? Like, what, did you want to highlight these different aspects, or were you trying to ha like address broader themes? It's more for me actually. Uh, it's more uh, like Zuba. Uh, we benefit from the street food uh, concepts. So basically, I search for street food all the time, and this is what we benefit in Zuba from. But personally, as Mustafa. I, I just enjoy doing this. It's like you find the hidden treasures, you know, like every time you dig in Egypt, you'll find a different recipe, a different way they eat, a different habit, a different information. It just like will blow your mind. Uh, so I just enjoy doing this. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I guess this leads us to sort of talking about the, the story of Zuba. I know it was a venture between you and Chris Khalifa. And yeah. I guess... How did you know each other? Uh, how did the concept become to be? What was the initial story of the opening? Okay, so um, I was I came back from Egypt. I I, uh, I was working for one of the most uh, famous uh, resorts in Egypt. It was uh, I, I brought actually Gordon Ramsay to be uh, uh, working with me to to do the opening for the place. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a like, really nice place. Then I met Chris Khalifa. Uh, back in 2011, uh, after the revolution in Egypt and all this big mess in Egypt. So we were talking, me and him, through friends, and we, he mentioned that he, his dream is actually to open a restaurant. He's a financial, finance, you know, like he's, in, he's genius when it comes to financial marketing and stuff like that. Mm. But he doesn't know how to cook or do anything like that. So he was talking to me. I, I told him this is my dream as well. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to do something like that. So we did talk about it. I went home, I saw my wife, I was super excited. I told her, you know what? I'm gonna quit my job, I'm gonna start this business with Chris. And she called me crazy and she called her dad crying. And my dad as well. I, um, I actually had to take my wife to a meeting between me and Chris to convince her to, that it's uh, the right decision to, to open Zuba. And actually uh, we convinced her and here we go. 10 years later, we have Zuba and we have 11 branches between three continents. Yeah, no, mashallah. Um, Thank you. And um, I guess, what were the challenges you two faced in the early years of the restaurant? It was a revolution, again. The whole country was a mess. Uh, between suppliers, uh, you coming out from a revolution, like everybody was in a shock. Nobody knew what to do. Um, that was the biggest challenge. <coughs> so everybody knows, knows me or Chris was giving us advice. That's not the right time. That's not the right time. So we sat down and we said, when is the right time? You know, like there is no perfect time. So we, we decided to open. We went to Zamalek and we rented the most uh, nice shop that we, we thought it would be a beautiful location. We chose the name and we worked in the menu. And we were crossing our fingers because we didn't know uh, we didn't know how how successful it will be, and um, we didn't have an office at the time. So I used to park my car. Like if you if you are familiar with the Malik, there is a big bridge in the in the Malik. So I used to park my car in front of the restaurant under the bridge, and me and Chris would sleep in the car, and we just do all our paperwork, everything, banking, and everything in the car. And oh, wow. it's like that was our, our office for a whole year. <laughs> That was one of the challenges. Um, but from day one, we, we knew we wanted to be an institution. We didn't want to be uh, just one restaurant. We wanted to spread the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian street food. We know we have really good food in Egypt. It just need, need to be represented right. 
marketed right. So we were working on it and we benefited from the older generation that actually built some really good restaurants uh, in Egypt, like Gad, uh, uh, all those uh, old restaurants, like they're doing really good Abu Tariq. So we were actually, we think we, we working together to present the Egyptian cuisine. Hmm. And you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, um, as a Moroccan, I think the Moroccan, like Morocco was very, has done very well in terms of marketing its cuisine to the rest of the world, uh, as yes. opposed to like the other side of my family, Algeria, where even though we both eat a lot of the same stuff, it's, Algeria is not known for its cuisine. So I guess, and this comes back, comes to, uh, you know, this London Falafel Festival in 2016. What do you think have been the challenges uh, in terms of making Egyptian cuisine a more like staple known cuisine outside of Egypt and not be associated. I think what a lot of people think of Arab food outside, they think of Shemi food. They think like that's a lot of- Lebanese this- actually, not Shemi, Lebanese. It's, uh, Lebanese, so it's, sure. Yeah, uh, that's why Arabic food, they say Lebanese. Uh, and they don't even mention Syria in, in the topic, um, which is very clever. That's what, again, it goes back to marketing. Lebanese are very clever all the time. They know how to market their product. And um, that same way like the uh, Israeli, you know, like they know how to market their product as well. Mm. So they took our cuisine out abroad to the Western atmosphere and they marketed the, the food really well. Uh, while we were here in Egypt, uh, uh, not doing anything about it. <laughs> so it's just, uh, yeah. So when we got invited to the festival in London, was actually they invited all the restaurants, all the, the restaurants from all the old countries, like uh, they make falafel. And that was actually by the UN. The United Nations decided to throw this competition to show the world that beans can be used and they wanted to push the people to use the more uh, uh, vegan uh, protein, like beans, fava beans. Mm. So uh, that was the biggest challenge that actually people know falafel from the perspective of uh, Lebanese and Syrian falafel, the, the golden bowl, the one made with chickpeas, not the green patty that we make in Egypt. So it was a challenge for me to, for, for, uh, in the beginning, you know? So I went to London. It was a tough competition for six hours. Uh, after six hours, uh, we, uh, we won the competition by vote and a half. That was a tough one. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, that's great. And it was a tough one. You know, if I saw the other competitors at the beginning, I didn't see anybody because I was by myself. So I was cooking the whole time. Like I, I, my eyelashes was stuck because of the oil from the frying, the frying falafel. But if I saw what, I was going to get intimidated. You know, they have really, really well set up. Like between the competitors, they were really perfect. I don't know how I won until today, to be honest. <laughs> and were you, were there a lot of like like tamia, like people in like pe- people making tamia in the competition, or was it really just you and then a, like everyone else making a chickpea based falafel? Uh, the there was a, a, a Palestine a Palestinian uh, chef who was making uh, the half chickpeas, half uh, uh, fava beans, which is the, they are really familiar with. Uh, the Israeli as well was doing this. Uh, he owns a restaurant called the Bell Bell in London. They have mm-hmm. like seven or eight branches at the time. The Syrian chef 
uh, all the establishments I was competing against, they were actually uh, they, they have restaurants in uh, in uh, London. So it was really tough for me. I see. We have a sort of quick fire Q and A. Uh, sure. So just sort of rapid fire. Let's just see what you have to say. What are you reading, watching right now? I'm, I'm reading a book about uh, Albert Hall, which is a traveler who came to Egypt back in the 18th century. And he was talking about different things in Egypt, negative and positive. And I just love how detailed he is. He was a, a monk who came to Egypt from Ireland and spent a while. Uh, he's lived for a while in Egypt and Palestine. And the book just blow, is blowing my mind. He's talking about hotels and details in hotels and how we were, what we used to eat and people what they used to dress like. It's just an amazing book. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Muhammad Salah, the football player. I just like him. <laughs> cool. Um, and what is your guilty pleasure midnight food choice? Oh my God, don't, don't go there. <laughs> so we need to know. Halawata Hanaya. You know the, the halva? Halawata Hanaya. Okay. It's just, I, I just, I can, I can eat the whole container at night <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm drinking milk or drinking water. I just, uh, then after I finish it, I just feel so guilty. I go to the next day to, to the treadmill. Then I go back to doing the same halawa again. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, lastly, what dish reminds you most of home? What dish reminds me? Mashi crumb. You know, like the stuffed cabbage? Yeah. The smell, the, the way it's done. Even like when I eat uh, the stuffed cabbage, they, uh, like the, we have a vegetarian version and uh, in Poland, in Poland, when I eat, actually, I just hit me that uh, I remember Egypt. I think that's really it for me. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time just to answer my sort of ramblings. But if anyone in the audience had any sort of Q and A, uh, but let me see. Oh, I see. If there's questions. Um, okay, so Pierre is asking: Are you gonna? Do you have plans to open a restaurant in Canada? In Canada, yeah. Actually, uh, we're looking at the. Uh, Big part of my team actually went to Vancouver. They've been working there for uh, almost four years now. And they're convincing us, me and Chris, and we actually will visit sometime this year and we're thinking to open uh, a restaurant there. And uh, yeah, definitely um, Canada is one of the, the countries we're thinking of. Okay. And then uh, we have another question. Um, they want to know how was the decision taken to hire an international agency uh, for your branding and stuff when there's a lot of local talent? Uh, we wanted to explore how people look at us differently. Uh, that was the main thing. You know, like um, we did try with different uh, agencies in Egypt and everybody was just doing it like we are talking to ourselves. So we wanted to get a, a different person. Like when we got Jessica Walsh actually, she came to Egypt for a one week and she she walked from, if you know, Al-Azhar all the way to Zamalek, all the way to Halwan. She did lots of walks in Egypt to come come with, the, with all those different ideas. Then we went back and our team is the Egyptian. So we were consulting everything with our team from Egypt. Mm. But uh, I would, again, like to thank you, Mustafa. Thank you for taking the time, <laughs> even though thank you. you're out and about. But thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Hopefully, my questions made a little bit of sense. Uh, but I really no, that was really actually. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for the halawa tahanaya one. No, but I really learned a lot. I hope everyone in the chat learned a lot. Um, 
stay in touch. Uh, we'll have thank you. We're definitely having more sort of events like this. No, thank you. Keep in touch, guys. If you have any questions, uh, hit me a DM and uh, an Instagram. I'll get back to you right away. Uh, best of luck to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Mahdi. Thank you, Sekra. Uh, thank you, Amabak. Thank you for, for having me. Really appreciate it. No, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.